I'm Denzel Mohammed. Welcome back to JobMakers. The immigration system in the United States is complex, to say the least. Visa categories for nearly every letter of the alphabet, exemptions, restrictions, rule changes with every new administration. We need more workers, innovators, and entrepreneurs in an increasingly competitive world and amid an historic worker shortage and cash-strapped social safety systems due to a graying workforce. So does the United States immigration system work in its favor? For Eric Whitman, immigration lawyer and founder of Passage Immigration Law in Portland, Oregon, it does not. We routinely turn away ambitious, risk-taking people at all skill levels, high and low, which the country needs. From vaccine creators to crop pickers, the U.S. throughout its history has depended on the sweat and brain power of immigrants, who largely go on to become the next crop of Americans. Eric guides us through the immigration process for agricultural workers, international students, high-skilled workers, and people with extraordinary ability. He shows us the myriad ways Americans benefit from their work, and he shows us where we fall short, shooting ourselves in the foot because of a hijacked immigration discussion, as you learn in this week's JobMakers podcast. Eric Whitman, founding attorney at Passage Immigration Law in Portland, Oregon. Thank you for joining us on the JobMakers podcast. Thank you so much. It's a real privilege to be here. Now, to be clear, you're not an immigrant, but you have a lot of experience with immigration, both in and outside of the U.S. Is that right? Yes. Yes. My grandpa Sven came from Sweden, but I was born in the U.S. And we'll discuss it later, I'm sure, how I immigrated to Hungary periodic, well, for a couple of years prior. Terrific. So who exactly is Eric Widman? Yeah, so I'm from California. I'm an immigration lawyer who grew up in a really diverse environment in Cupertino, California. In my high school, Caucasians were the minority. We had lots of lots of Asians there. So there's a lot of diversity that I experienced growing up. And I got to spend a summer really formative experience in Japan, living there as a junior hire. And that led me to study international relations, focus on international business law in law school. And then I taught in Hungary after that and met a Hungarian woman who's now my wife. And we have three dual citizen kids. Oh, that's terrific. So as I mentioned, you have ex tremendous experience with immigration, both here and, and abroad. As someone who's gone through the immigration process, both as an immigration attorney and uh, with your wife in Hungary, um, tell us a little bit about the immigration process and, and how it's different. Yes. So the U.S. system is known as an incredibly complex set of rules and changing priorities. And it's similar to the, the U.S. tax code in that it keeps expanding in complexity. No one ever reduces complexity. It's just more and more tricky. And it's very politicized. So there are policies that seem to bounce back from one direction to the other, depending on which administration's in power. And so the timeline is quite long for immigrants in general, even before COVID, for immigrants to go through the process in the U.S. And comparing ourselves to Canada or most European countries, 
they're more efficient and they can get people permanent residence, work permits faster. So that's why it's a really a real competitive issue for the U.S. You bring up the tax system, you know, Byzantine is one way to describe the immigration process here. Um, you have visas from A to Z with, you know, numbers and everything in between. Um, it, it's, it's so much to digest. Um, but you, it's not just in terms of speed, right, with these uh, other countries. It's targeting who they want, right? Yes, yes. The U.S. has a quota system, which in many ways is is unfair. Uh, and certain nationalities have a very long wait, wait time. So Indians, Mexicans, those from the Philippines, Chinese have a really long wait time to get green cards because there's a cap on how many from each nation can be allowed into the U.S. So that definitely impacts the, the the type of the nationality, the type of immigrant we have. And so it's not just it's not just a long wait period. It's a insurmountably long wait period for those who have one of those nationalities that's got a massive backlog. And it doesn't work in their favor, the immigrants' favor, and it just doesn't work in America's favor either. And I want to point out specifically the crisis that we're facing right now, and I really want to get your comments on it. The U.S. is facing historic woes in terms of the current labor shortage. There are more than 10 million job openings and only 5.7 million unemployed people to fill them. Now, at the start of the pandemic, necessarily, perhaps, the Department of State canceled all visa services at embassies across the world. Uh, but even when they started to reopen later that summer, processing was so slow and sluggish that the U.S. missed out on two million working age immigrants who would have come here with certain skill sets, with certain educational backgrounds, and would have eased the labor shortage that we're experiencing right now. So again, two things stand out about this. Firstly, that we could have had two million more, more immigrants who could have significantly eased this worker shortage. And the little known fact that one visa category did in fact keep going throughout the suspension of all other categories, the H-2A visa for temporary agricultural workers. They kept us fed, they kept picking the fruits, they kept our groceries supplied. Um, tell us a little bit about the importance of low-skilled workers and why do you think they kept that one visa category going? Yes, thankfully Congress listened to our farmers, the agricultural companies that produce our food, and we would have been in big trouble as a nation, especially under, under COVID. We still would be in big trouble if we didn't have this flow of H-2A workers or, or immigrant, non-immigrant workers who come in for a season, temporary period of time, and do the really tough work that we drive by. Most people who are not in the agricultural industry, we can see them working the fields. They're bent over, incredibly difficult work that uh, some people even die in the really hot conditions out there. So these, these jobs are tough. They're not desirable. And part of the American dream is that people don't want to do these jobs long term. The, the immigrant comes in because he or she's willing at that skill level to do that really tough work. And then they're thinking about their family and their kids. They think, well, my, my kids will be able to get an education, do more. But it is a true win-win when we have our agricultural needs met and people who live in essentially absolute poverty throughout the south of the border in various countries are happy to do this tough work. They can save up money 
and buy a house and support their grandparents with this money. So you started to describe this this kind of worker, uh, and and you've you've done some immigration work in this field as well. So could you sort of describe more about who these agricultural workers are, uh, how they end up in the U.S., how they're recruited, what are some of their characteristics? Yeah. So the H two A agricultural worker is someone who has experience. They go through recruiter recruitment agencies, individual recruiters. They work directly with with farms to bring in these folks who are really a stellar group of people. They are searching for any any opportunity they can get, but by and large, wonderful family people. And the recruiters are choosing those who don't have a criminal record, those who are great, hardworking people with a track record of being really diligent. So we need those workers who can pick the fruits that we eat. But of course, as you know, and I know, we also need workers and innovators who can perform feats of science and keep the U.S. at the cutting edge of technology and innovation, don't we? Yes, yes. And the businesses that are competing globally in a really tough environment, Intel, for example, is here in almost like a life or death struggle against other companies trying to create the the best possible microprocessors. And the the founder of Intel said, you always have to be paranoid. Only the paranoid survive. And interestingly, he was an immigrant from Hungary. And so I've I've got the Hungarian connection there. But Andy Grove, the founder or co-founder of Intel, was a Hungarian immigrant. So the the, the paranoid survive. It's it's a brutal capitalistic clash of, of companies. And we need people who are amazing at math, science, STEM fields. And right now, we're not graduating enough native-born Americans with these uh, intense PhD programs, computer science, chemistry, physics. When I worked at Philips Electronics, I was asking some of the LED lighting PhDs, is what you do more physics or chemistry? And they, they love describing the details, but it's both. At the, at the microprocessor level, they're getting into just like things I don't understand, nanometers of uh, complexity. So we need super smart people to do this and we're not graduating enough. And so the companies are hungry for them and they're typically from countries all over the world that are traditionally strong at, at science, Chinese, Taiwanese, many Europeans. There's, there's a big need for this. And I like the example you just you just brought up because uh, one thing that's often brought up on this podcast is the need for diversity of thought, diversity of backgrounds in order to come up with a finished product. And you talk about Intel and its co-founders. I would bring up uh, Pfizer and Moderna in the U.S. Uh, right here in Boston, actually, where foreign-born and U.S.-born people co-founded these companies. And together, they come up with the most brilliant things, like the COVID-19 vaccine. Similarly, in Germany, uh, it was German and immigrant uh, inventors who came up with uh, the, the what is it, the BioNTech vaccine over there. So there is truly magic that can be created by having this diversity of thought. We need more people in STEM. We need more Americans in STEM, certainly. But frankly, uh, and the data bears this out, without immigrants, without international students, STEM programs across the country would be suffering and probably have to close. 
And to our credit, the U.S. university system is attracting them. We want to attract them. We want to be known as the best university system. We want to be known to be the best environment to really grow your career. And so I, I love stories exactly like the development of the COVID vaccine, where you have multi, the, the best and brightest from each country participating to provide the, the best product. That's what our sports teams do. You, you encourage labor mobility, the best people who can perform. And that's inherently capitalistic, right? Just a, a, an economy that attracts the best and the brightest in order to succeed. Yes, yes. And and I think one of my main messages to those who are more skeptical of the, the value of immigration is that if we're in favor of a free market, if we're in favor of the best can achieve and succeed, we should be in favor of labor mobility so that we can allow the, the best people from around the world to come in and compete and get those jobs as we need them because our, our companies will certainly benefit. You talk about labor mobility. What What is our current system to allow uh, the best and the brightest or those who want to come and study or work here? And what are some of the shortcomings? The pathway to come to the U.S. as a student, knowing you're going to get a great education in any state in, in the union, even if you don't have a Ivy League brand name, you many people from all over the world, it's still prestigious, prestigious to go to a, a small town school because it's an American school. So we have to maintain that prestige. And after that, they often do this, what's called OPT, optional practical training, and they can work in their degree field for a year, either pre-completion, OPT, post-completion, and they, they work for a company for a year. Then if that company is impressed, which they often are, they file for an H-1B petition for H-1B professional worker visa to have, give that immigrant a chance to work for them. Right now, unfortunately, there's only a 30% chance that they'll be selected in the lottery. So it's more likely than not that because of the, the cap, because of the limited number of H-1B visas and the, the increase in demand that exceeds that, so then they have to look at other options. And many keep going to, to college and get a higher degree. There's also a extraordinary ability visa, which is an increasingly positive option for and something that we've had to rely upon when people can't get an H-1B, for example. But it's hard to be extraordinary in your career when you have all this potential, but you're only 23. What, what can you accomplish at that point? So sometimes we can connect the dots for USCIS and show them that they are extraordinary, even with just a couple of years under their belt of, of work experience. And just to be clear, uh, when you talked about the, the H-1B high-skilled worker visa, um, there is a cap. There's a certain number that, that that are issued, and because there's so many applications, they actually have a actually have to have a lottery system in order to choose and and meet that cap. So thousands upon thousands of other people, high skilled immigrants, are deliberately they just tossed away. They're left out. There's an element of luck, and this seems very un-American. That doesn't seem like we're we're choosing the best and allowing the best to work for us. We, we wanna give more opportunities to these people. It, it's, a, it's a free market. That's what we should support more, uh, but it's not a free market for the immigrant. And it's not advantageous to us if we are deliberately uh, telling people, nope, you have to go back, uh, no more room. 
And you, you mentioned the extraordinary ability visa. Tell us a little bit more about this O visa and the kinds of people who, who may qualify and the, some of the things that they accomplish in the U.S. Yes. And everyone would love to be called extraordinary. And so it's, there's a high bar. Most of us, unfortunately, cannot be class, truly classified as, as extraordinary. But hey. with, with, uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, it's, it's a, we all should aim for it. That's for certain. But the challenge is to show why this particular applicant truly is at the top of, of his or her field. A Taekwondo expert from, from Hungary. So that was someone else we, we helped. He was world champion. He was happy to teach Oregonian kids and build his business and, and help his employer with that. We've also had a... O1 approved for an amazing Chinese artist, for example. He was rather young, a recent graduate from school, but a world-class painter. And so we were able to show, please give this person a visa. He is, he is going to make an amazing contribution. His employer wants him. And please grant this pathway to this amazing, extraordinary individual. And indeed, these incredible people, the best and the brightest, come to this country and keep it innovative and entrepreneurial. And I really admire the, the diversity of, of people you've described from Taekwondo art, uh, uh, champions to artists. I mean, that's pretty incredible. But research from our own partners at the Institute for Immigration Research at George Mason University shows that even up to one third of our Nobel Prize winners are immigrants. Isn't that incredible? That... that statistic stuns me and it's remarkable to hear it and it's it's a beautiful thing too to look at the way for example historically we welcomed albert einstein we've we've welcomed all these individuals who went on to do amazing things for our our country and the entire world so i i'm always moved by statistics like that because we enable the the greatest people that people who are amazing at their fields to achieve to their full potential. And that is what makes the U.S. the land of opportunity, is where we we give people a platform to really thrive and get access to resources and government funding for in some cases. So it's not just industries that are attracting people, it's our, our higher education system. People who come here and do postdocs and they collab, importantly, they collaborate with U.S.-born uh, researchers at these universities, and they come up with the most incredible inventions and theories, and they win the Nobel Prize for it. Uh, but it's America who gets the credit, and, and rightfully so, because we are the ones attracting these, these bright people, right? Absolutely. So before I get to my last question, uh, just comment on what, you've, what we've spoken about so far, about the need for high-skilled and low-skilled immigrants on the inherently entrepreneurial nature of immigrants. Um, just sort of comment on that for a little bit before we we close. Yes, the the need for immigrant labor is strong on both the the higher end of the spectrum, lower end in in the middle and listen to these thought leaders like Elon Musk, like many who have credibility when I know he's a controversial figure these days but who understand groundbreaking big uh, thinkers. And they see that if, as a population continues to age, we're going to need people to take care of them. 
we're not going to have the tax base. Social Security is in big trouble. We're not having enough kids to fund all of the money we're going to have to pay for our healthcare system. So one of the few pathways open to us is more immigrant labor. And historically, we have done a great job of welcoming people from all over the world and incorporating them into our society. And their kids go on to be amazing contributors on their own. And they are 100% American. And it, it speaks to what or who is an American. It's not defined by how you look, how you speak, uh, what you wear. It's something much more intrinsic about being an American. Um, and that is something multitudes of people can share. And that's what American society has is and has always been. Yes. Yeah. And I, I encourage people to look at the oath of allegiance when people are becoming citizens. And people are proudly saying, yes, I'm willing to support the U.S. Constitution. And, and I think fundamentally that is what, what unites us, is our core commitment to one another through these founding principles of, of liberty, democracy, fair opportunity, the rule of law. Those things are, are what unite us. And it's, it's too bad we've been sidetracked by, by more peripheral things these days. But the, the core of what, what unites new Americans and native-born Americans, it's still there. This was a really good conversation. Eric Whitman, immigration attorney, uh, founding attorney at Passage Immigration Law in Portland, Oregon. Thank you for joining us on the JobMakers podcast to talk about immigrant workers, immigrant entrepreneurs, uh, immigrant innovators, and immigrants in general. Thank you so much, Denzel. It was a real pleasure. JobMakers is a weekly podcast about immigrant entrepreneurship and contribution produced by Pioneer Institute, a think tank in Boston, and the Immigrant Learning Center in Malden, Massachusetts, a not-for-profit that gives immigrants a voice. Thank you for joining us for this week's discussion on how our immigration system falls short when we need it most, and a glimpse into what we should do about it. If you know an outstanding immigrant business owner or innovator we should talk to, email Denzil, that's D-E-N-Z-I-L, at jobmakerspodcast.org. I'm Denzel Mohammed. See you next Thursday at noon for another Jobmakers.